So this is our third week in our Advent series, uh, and it's, an, it's a great thing. This year, uh, we, we, as we're praying about it every year, uh, we, we look at the stories surrounding Christmas and, and read different uh, Gospels related to the Christmas story. And this year, we thought, this is interesting. Uh, we haven't been in a Gospel for a number of years, like actually gone through a whole Gospel as a church, which is normally our pattern is to go through books of the Bible. We went through Matthew several years ago. It took over a year to go through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. And so we thought, well, let's look at the Gospel of Luke. And interestingly, it's perfect. And that's exactly how Luke has arranged his Gospel, is that it is an introduction beginning with the coming of Jesus at Christmas. It's amazing. It actually lines up perfectly four Sundays in a row. So we're in our third week this week. We're going to be beginning at verse 39 and going all the way to verse 80. So those of you who have roasts on at home, if you have a remote app, you should turn it off. Just kidding. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to read. Normally, I would read the whole passage, and then we would expound it and go through it. So this time, what we're going to do, because they're narratives. These are narratives. Uh, the actual gospel of Luke is the longest gospel, longest book written, and it would literally take us three, maybe four years if we were to spend all the time necessary to go into every verse and the depth of every one. And so we're not going to do that. We can't. They're narratives, especially at the beginning. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read some passages. We're going to have a look at what it means and what it says and look at the big ideas, and we're going to be basically reading through the story, these 40 verses, 41 verses this morning. So I think we're all going to need some help one more time. Uh, let me pray as we begin this this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for this time this morning again. Father, I thank You for Dr. Luke. I thank You, Holy Spirit, for, uh, yeah, touching his heart and saving a skeptic like him. And I thank you for the, the call on his heart to write this account that he lovingly puts together for a personal friend, someone who he wants to have assurance about his faith and what he has been taught and what he believes to be true about Jesus. So I just pray as we go through these things today, I pray that you would take the words and the ideas and thoughts you've given to me and use them mightily for your honor and your glory. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So begin reading with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 39. It says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so let's do a little catch-up, first of all. Uh, in those days uh, is referring to what we looked at last week, which is the time of uh, the days we looked at when Zechariah is visited by the angel Gabriel. And yes, for skeptics out there, as Luke is recording for his good friend Theophilus, there are angels, and there is one in particular whose name is Gabriel, and he's a mighty angel. Uh, this angel, Gabriel, told him, the old man that he was, the priest that he was, that he and his advanced in years wife, that's how he calls, not, I didn't say that's what he says, and that's what's written by Luke, that they are going to, after she has been barren and they've not been able to have children all of their lives, they're in their 80s, maybe 90s, that they're going to have a son. Finally, <laughs> finally, is kind of Zachariah's response. We saw that it's a bit of a sore spot with him and probably with Elizabeth. I mean, they, it's an embarrassment to them both that he being a priest that, and he serving God the way that he did every day in the temple, 
that they would not be blessed with a child. And even amongst their peers, especially in the community, that was probably a sign to many people that maybe there was something not right in their life spiritually. And so it was a reproach, Elizabeth says, or we are told, she said. Then, of course, Gabriel shows up to the then 14-year-old Mary, who's betrothed to Joseph, which is a, a period of time before they actually get married, about one year, where there's to be no hanky-panky until the actual ceremony takes place. And he shows up to her, and, and, and she, he tells her that she will become pregnant in a very unnatural way, not to say that the elderly at 80 and 90 is not unnatural, doesn't require a miracle. She's a virgin. And he tells her that she will become pregnant, not by a man, but by the Holy Spirit. So now let's look at what we have here today. We have a very excited Mary. I mean, maybe a little fearful too, right? She's 14, maybe 15 years of age, and she's running with haste to the country to see her aunt Elizabeth because she's heard that she is with child as well from the angel Gabriel, and so she runs there. And the first thing we hear is that as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, as soon as she hears her voice, John, the Baptist, who he will become, the baby in her womb leaps for joy. He's leaping for joy knowing Mary is carrying his cousin, Jesus, who will become the Savior of the world. But there's much more here much, much more going on, as usual. Mary is carrying his cousin. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, as we've read, then speaks, and look at her words. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Very humble. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what, the, what was spoken to her from the Lord. So this is quite amazing what's going on here, right? There's, there's some amazing things going on. Mary hasn't spoken a word yet. She hasn't said anything possibly any more than her greeting as Elizabeth responds to She's heard her voice, maybe even talking to the servants, and she's so excited, wants to get to Elizabeth. But somehow, Elizabeth knows. Somehow, Elizabeth knows, miraculously, that she is pregnant. And more, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby in her womb leaps with joy. She knows that Mary is pregnant, but not because Mary has told her. And then she's like, she's like, you've been blessed, Mary. She declares it. She prophesies, but she also declares, you've been blessed, and the baby in your womb has been blessed. And look at this. That baby in your womb is my Lord. That's remarkable. There's really been no conversation taking place. The only conversation that's taking place is in Elizabeth's mind and heart, and it's with the Holy Spirit who is revealing this to her. So really, this is incredible. Elizabeth is now six months pregnant at this point in the journey. 
six months pregnant, but Jesus hasn't even gone from the embryo to the fetus stage, scientifically speaking. I mean, Mary's like within a week or two of being pregnant. He hasn't even gone to that point. And so what is actually Elizabeth doing here, do you think? I mean, it's an amazing thing that she knows the information. She knows that Mary is with child. She knows that the child that Mary is with is her Lord, meaning her God and her Savior. But then look at the words that comes out of her mouth and look at the way she presents it. What is she really doing here, do you think? I think it's one word. Worship. I mean, what do you do when, when this kind of a situation presents itself with you, to you? What do you do when, when you, you realize and the light bulbs go on that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He came and that He died for you and that He rose again so that you could have eternal life? The appropriate response is this. It's worship. She's worshiping the one in Mary's womb, and look what she's doing for Mary. She's confirming what the angel had told Mary. He, the one that the Holy Spirit will impregnate you with, is the Messiah. You are going to carry the Savior of the world. No pressure. Realize you're young. No pressure, but I am with you. I think that I need to take a little sidebar for you here this this morning, just to maybe emphasize this a little bit. Some of you know because I'm crazy on Facebook and Instagram this week. Janice and I uh, went away for our anniversary. We went to Tofino, right? We finally had an opportunity to stay at a place that she will never let me spend money on. You need to marry a woman like that, by the way. Very utilitarian, doesn't really want a lot. She would never let me spend money and take her to this place. So we were there. We're at at Cox Bay uh, Beach, and we're staying at the Pacific Sands. It's right on the water, and God blessed us with three days of 10 degrees and sunshine. Like, we got the Storm Watcher special, okay? It doesn't make any sense, but there we are. We're having a great time. And, and I'm going around taking pictures, taking pictures, taking pictures. And Jan's going, take a picture of that, take a picture of that. And then I'm going, to take a picture of that. And then her phone got all filled up. And so she's grabbing my phone. We're taking pictures. And every picture, it seemed, as we were taking these pictures, we'd stand back and go, it just doesn't capture it. Capture it. And I'm posting it going, hey, look, this is awesome. And some of you are going, like, 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 stop posting, Glenn. We're trying to like all these. But... The thought was, it just doesn't capture it. Ever had that feeling? You take pictures, you're there. It, it can't capture exactly what's going on. Now, I think the same could happen to these narrative stories if we don't look deeper into the picture. That's what can happen. It happens every Christmas. You hear these read? You heard John 1 read this morning, you know, and, you know, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think there's a question that has to be asked here to go a little bit deeper so that we actually see the picture captured that Luke wants us to see. I mean, here's a question for you. How did Luke get these details? Now, if if you're a skeptic, if you were a skeptic here today, you would be asking that question. You'd be like, well, (laughs) how 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 did he get this story? You'd be asking and likely saying something like this, come on. This, this guy is just writing, you know, his own, you know, wishful, hopeful, fanciful story to make the birth of Jesus more fantastic, amazing, and oh yeah, divine. You would be asking those questions, I think. Well, listen, for most uh, um, skeptics, most skeptics in our world today, like they rely on something called facts, right? 
And, 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 and that's the point. You've got to remember, like we, we learned this the very first week, that's what Luke is. He's a factician. I know that some of you here are English majors and there's no such word, but I'm, it's my word, okay? He's a factician. He's a historian. He's a documentarian. He's a physician, which means in that day he was likened to be a scientist, and he's writing to his previously uh, pagan Greek skeptic friend Theophilus. The last thing that Luke is going to do is make this stuff up. That's the last thing he's going to do is write some fanciful tale. Theo's a Roman governor of some kind. He's not, a, he's not a fool. He could verify these things. And do you know how? Most of the people that Luke is speaking about at this time are still alive. And that's exactly what he said in the first four verses of this gospel. Is he said, I, I, I read everything that was written about Jesus. Mostly the gospel of Mark had already been written. I wrote I read everything, but I also got eyewitness accounts, and I listened to all the preachers who were some of his apostles who were preaching about him, and, and then I collected all of this into an orderly account so you, Theophilus, would have certainty that these facts are true. Well, there's one other aspect that I think is important that we understand here, is he probably spoke to Mary. Don't you think? She was still alive when he wrote this. As a matter of fact, most historians believe that at this point she was living in the house of John the Apostle in Ephesus, and he would have spoken with her. Now, imagine as well, Jesus is born, right? And you got Mary and Joseph, and you got Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. Now, they were probably not alive at this time because they were quite old and probably passed away. John the Baptist had been beheaded, so he wasn't around to ask about these things. But listen, they grew up as cousins. They had Thanksgiving, that, well, maybe not, but they had no, not even Christmas, but they, they had the Passover, right? They had family festivals and events all the time where they'd get together and they'd be like, Mom, Aunt Elizabeth, could, could you tell us again? Could you tell us again? And as I pointed out to you in the first message, oral tradition was far more respected in that day than written documents because they were verifiable. They were verifiable. And, you know, if next year mom started to, you know, like, you know, like really expand the story, the kids would be like, hey, hey, wait a second. Didn't hear that part before. And that's exactly how Luke brought it all together. He brought it all together. And so that's the background we need to see. This is not just a fanciful, you know, mystical story. This is history. He knows what Mary says and what Zechariah says and what Elizabeth says because... He heard it directly from Mary and from others. There's one final note here before we move on. I want you to notice, and I think it's important we notice, how Luke, how the Holy Spirit starts this account. A few men are mentioned. Theo, uh, Theophilus, who needs his faith strengthened. Uh, Zechariah, whose unbelief at first results in him being muted and deaf. And although not in Luke, we know Joseph is in the picture, but also quite silent. No, it's two lowly and humble women. And I say that carefully, but it's truthful, that in that day, women were just not, their testimonies, they were not considered or respected in the same way as men were. And this is yet the way the Holy Spirit, the way God decides to bring the story to us about Christmas. It's honoring, but it also speaks about humility the humility of Mary at 14 to first hear, as we saw last week, the news from Gabriel was like, great. 
How is that going to happen? No unbelief. Just help me understand how you're going to make this happen. I'm ready if I am the one favored by God to carry the Messiah. It's a beautiful picture. So it's one very old and one very young woman who are those whom the Holy Spirit chooses to reveal the coming of the Messiah to the world. First of all, and so this is one of the true signs of a Christian that we see in both of these women. One of the true signs of a Christian is a person who is humbled that the Son of God would reveal Himself to them, to save them of all people. So now we read, we're going to read Mary's response, and it's the most beautiful and worship, worshipful response I think you could ever read to the news that's been given to her by her aunt, Elizabeth. It goes on in verses 46 to 49 and says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. Her um, song that she's singing here, that she's beginning here, it's called and known well as the Magnificat. Um, that's actually the Latin word uh, that is in the Vulgate, the Latin Catholic translation of the Greek New Testament. The Greek word is the word magaluno um, that is translated here as magnify in our ESV translation. It literally means in the Greek to cause something to be large or appear large, to make great and hold in high esteem. Magnify. Magnify. That's what we do in worship. That's Mary's response in worship is to magnify, not her self, but Him. Mary opens her song with one of the most beautiful pictures of who God is, what He has done, what He has done. Her soul magnifies Him, as I said, not herself. Her spirit rejoices in Him for saving her and for making her destiny, her life, to be blessed. He's done all of this because of what He has done and will do, no matter what. Now, listen, let's be, be, let's be careful here. You and I live on this side of the cross, right? We know that the next 34 years of her life are not going to be a cakewalk. She's going to lose him at one point when he's 12 years of age, right? Ever lost a child for four hours, 12 minutes? And then she's going to lose him on that day on the cross. And yet she's blessed. She's blessed, and she praises Him, and she trusts God all her life. And goes on in her song, and she says, and His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate Man, 14, 15 years old. Clearly, she has the Holy Spirit upon her as well. Mary's song here is the gospel. Her song is the gospel before the gospel has been lived out and completed. So, so it's not only a praise and a worship and a song, it's prophetic. It's 
beautiful what she says. First, Mary has already pointed to those like herself who were, were of humble estate, who are servants. Look at, I mean, she knows who God is, what God has done, who then she is, and how then she should live. She's a humble servant. And then she speaks to the mighty, the rich, and the rulers of this world. Not just those in power or literally wealthy, as we're going to see, but she lumps them all in one into one word that best describes the lost and religious in our world in that day and in this day today, and they are the proud. The proud. She points to what all of Scripture, the Old Testament, and what will occur and be written in the New Testament, and that is this. It's, it's completely upside down, completely countercultural with Jesus. It is the humble the lowly of a state that receive Jesus Christ, believe and trust in Him, and then with all of their hearts, minds, bodies, and souls, become His servant. Become His servant. There's so many examples that we could look at here today, uh, but let's start, let's, let's start with how God picks people. How about with King David? Remember, remember that guy? King David. Now, Jesus is of the lineage of David, and prophecy said that he had to be from the lineage of David. He's one of, David is one of eight children and not voted most likely to be the next king after Saul at all in that family. In fact, when God sends the prophet Samuel to David's home to anoint the next king, Samuel sees his bigger, taller, really strap, strapping, pecs, the whole deal, brother, and goes, that's the guy that God wants. And God's like, no. No, go out to the field, and, and, and I want you to find that guy, you know, uh, the, younger, the younger one. He's kind of scrawny right now. He's not very tall. He hasn't fully grown yet, right? Still pretty small. Plays a harp, ning, 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 right? And, and, he, and, he, and he likes to hang out with the sheep, right? That's my guy. David becomes the giant slayer. That's what he does. The humble and forgotten one gets exalted. That's how it works with God. I mean, look at all of Jesus' disciples, right? He walks by the sea and he looks at Peter, rough hands, you know, not well educated. I catch fish. You know, I take them to the market, they give me money, and that's it. And, and he goes, You and your brother, let's go. Follow me. You know, that's where he starts. Calling people like that, people, uh, Matthew, the tax collector, hated amongst his fellow Jews. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, I want that one, the, the, the one, the outcast, the one that you don't want. I, I want. I want Matthew and all the lowly outsiders who loved him because he loved them. And I've pointed this out many, many times. It's so, it, it's so remarkable with Jesus, and it's crazy when you see it in our world today. But in, in the times of Christ, it was, it was amazing the people that loved to be around him and the people who he loved to be around. It's the outcasts, the prostitutes, the lepers, the drunks, the drug addicts, the poor, the proud, the mighty, and the righteous, and the religious judged him for that. They expected that, well, look at us. Look how good we are, how clean we are, how successful, how wealthy we are. We should pick us. The pattern's always the same with God. The pattern's always the same. God lifts up the humble, and He humbles the proud. 
I've been humbled. Have you ever been humbled? Come on. Come on. The Song of Mary announces both the gospel and the arrival of the one, listen, who will conquer the world. He already has. He's king. He has conquered the world. He's the king of kings. But his way of going about it is so opposite to the way we think it should be done, right? Mary's not done. She says in verses 53 to 56, he has, look at this, filled the hungry with good things. Filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned home. So she stays with Elizabeth until Elizabeth is about to give birth to John. And then she goes home herself now, about three and a half months pregnant. I love those words that we see there. He has filled the hungry with good things. Now, I, I, I know most of you here, and none of you look like you've ever really experienced starvation. But have you ever been really, really starving? <laughs> really, really hungry. And, and that starvation can be for more than food. Let's be clear. But obviously includes food. Starving from or maybe for attention, uh, loving attention like a very good friend, even the attention of your husband or your wife. Or how about in about another 30 days, starving for some sunshine, right? Some of us starve for sunshine. Or how about starving for meaning and purpose in your life, you know, that, that you would have a career, you'd have something that you could give yourself to, and you could wake up every day and go, oh, yeah. Are you starving for that? Have you ever starved for that? Um, if you can imagine a real sense of starvation, then maybe you will understand this verse better than most people. When you are truly at a point of starvation, truly at a point of starvation, at the end of yourself. You're, you're, you're just, you're literally, you're dying because you need something so badly and you're starving for it. Then the simplest thing will be a very good thing and it will fill you up. I mean, if you were really, truly starving, KD would be awesome, wouldn't it? I learned 14 different recipes for KD when I was a single guy. It's a good thing that I met Janice. But it could be, couldn't it? I mean, a, a simple small bowl of rice and a small piece of fish would be amazing, wouldn't it? If you were truly starving. It could be sunshine for one whole day. It could be the warmth of your home where all of a sudden you're realizing that even though it's still raining outside and you haven't seen sunshine for a bunch of days and you've been searching TripAdvisor for weeks and you can't find anything you can afford to go to and yet all of a sudden you go, I have my house and I have heat. It's good. That filled me up. It could be one small gesture from a friend, someone you hadn't noticed really, or some small, and I'm talking small here, ladies, gesture by your husband to fix something around the house. It can fill us up. 
But unfortunately, here's what you and I do. You and I do this. We do this. Now, remember, please remember, this is not easy. We're broken, right? We're, we're sinners, so it's not pretty. We're not, in, especially in our North American culture, we're not satisfied with simple. It's not enough. It's not enough. We think we actually deserve better for some reason than most other people in the world. And this is exactly what is meant by, and the rich he sends away empty. Listen to me here. This is not about those who are necessarily financially well off. This is about those who are proud and those who find themselves satisfied by their riches. And again, I've said this many, many times, every one of you in this room, and I know it doesn't feel like it all the time, but comparatively speaking, we are rich. We are so, so rich. This is about those who are proud of that. Those riches can be all the good things that God has given to us, but now we expect nothing but good and, frankly, better. Isn't the life of the Christian just supposed to get amped up and better and better and better, the more righteous and holy and, and the more we show up for church and the more we give and all the rest of it? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? No. So here's the biggest problem for all of us here today. Pride is a wicked thing. It's an awful thing. And the biggest problem is most of us don't feel like we're the ones with that problem. Others may have the problem of pride, but not us. And so here's what it looks like from God's perspective. When we start feeling satisfied with ourselves, our financial situation, with our homes, our ability to travel and get sun whenever we want it, uh, to enjoy not just simple food, but I'm talking gourmet, meals out, really good wines, you know, like give me the wine list. I, I don't have to pick the cheapest, can't afford the most expensive, but I can go the middle at least, right? And I can have all that. When we get to that point, in our lives, we get to the point where simple is not good enough. And we get to the point where we're now in danger of feeling so full, feeling so full that we no longer pursue God or feel we even have any need for Him. And so what this text is talking about is that people who believe they have enough or whatever they need will tend to not need the Lord anymore or possibly ever, and the list is endless. They've got enough money in the bank, enough to travel, and enough to have enough material possessions. Their marriage is pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's good enough, right? It's perfect, not perfect, but good enough. But there's, there's something that could happen that could change all this, right? There's something that could happen that could change all this. And I'm old enough to have seen some of these things in my own life, but also in the lives of many others. One day, if you don't lose one or more of these things, you will end up feeling the same as if you had. They, it, whatever it might be that you're pursuing for your happiness and your joy in this life today will end up not being enough. Then when we lose any one of those things that we have come to feel rich in or rich because of, we become disappointed with God, which brings us all the way back to where we started, which is pride. And that is what Luke is saying, that listen, even the rich in any of these categories, 
they're eventually going to be hungry and hungry for something more, something that truly satisfies. Are you hungry? Starving for that kind of satisfaction? Mary's song is an anthem. It's an anthem. And it's an anthem that points us to a place of humility where we glory in God, where we praise God, where we want to magnify God all the days of our lives. Not so much for what He has done for us, hear this, but for who He is. Man, do we know our God. Christmas, the story of Christmas, is there to show us who He is and what He's done and what He's like. So time is short. So let's now look at the final story in Luke's narrative, and then I'll, I'm just going to read the whole thing, and then we'll just we'll, we'll ponder a couple of things, because the story goes on in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and on. It says this, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And they made signs to him, inquiring what he'd be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. It's awesome. And they all wondered... And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So we see even in this reading here some... um, confirmation of some of the things we've been thinking about and seeing. He was not just mute, unable to talk, but he was deaf. They they had to make sign language to even communicate with him, with Zechariah. But we also see that, you know, his response immediately, and we're going to get to some aspects of this in a minute, just in closing, but it's remarkable. His first response is blessed, praise, magnifying. It goes on. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His way to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day 
of his public appearance to Israel. So now you'll remember first from last week that because of Zechariah's unbelief and frankly questioning attitude, God used the angel Gabriel to render him mute and deaf. And as I just said now in verse 62 here, it, makes, it says that he, he, they had to make signs to Zechariah asking him what name he wanted his child to be called. We also discussed at length last week that this, was, that this action causing him to be mute and deaf could only be taken one way, punishment. It was God's judgment on Zechariah for his unbelief. There's no greater sin, by the way, before our God than the sin of unbelief, not believing in Him, not trusting Him, not trusting His promises. God takes that very seriously, and so we saw that this was really a punishment. God punishes the sin, and especially in this case, the sin of unbelief. That, that could be outright unbelief in God Himself, but also, again, as in this case, unbelief in what God has promised. What the angel Gabriel revealed to, to Zechariah was remarkable, and he missed half of it. He missed the most important part of the promises that God had made. So now see this because it's wonderful. This is wonderful, this part of the story, and I'll close with this. Can you imagine? He's been deaf and mute for nine months, right? From the day that the angel Gabriel declared him to be deaf and mute, uh, and, and she gets pregnant, he's basically been watching his wife's pregnancy through the whole process at home. It's not like he can go to work and, and do the temple, you know, rituals. He can't do that. So for nine months, he's at home in his house, stuck there the whole time. He can't speak to anyone. No one can speak to him, maybe some sign language and so forth. But really, at the end of the day, he's only got two voices, his own <laughs> in his head and the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to him through the Word of God, which I'm sure over those nine months he must have turned to. I mean, think back to the words of Mary a few verses ago. It says, He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Zechariah is lost in his own thoughts for nine months. Now think about this. This is where we all go, right? It's where we all go when because of our unbelief, our rebellion, our lack of faith in God's promises, we spend days, we spend months, we spend years. I, I spend months, I spend years. I've got the t-shirt. Come on, we do this in our own thoughts. How tragic and toxic those thoughts can sometimes be, right? They can. We're in that place where we feel that either someone or God Himself has rejected us, failed us, not fulfilled their promises to us, or at least our expectations that we had, where we run these things over and over and over in our minds until one of things, two things happens. Either we become negative and bitter people who want nothing to do with God and or His people, or we get hungry, and we turn to God. Friends, that is exactly what I believe Zechariah did. He had nine months. His response, when you think about it, is so wonderful, and it's a testimony to all of us. 
His words at the beginning of His song of praise, of worship, of magnifying God are very telling. They tell us that He has truly repented from His unbelief and His sin of unbelief in the promises of God. He opens with, let me put them on screen for you to see them. He opens with, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. So why did I say and emphasize very telling? Well, if you remember back to when the angel Gabriel first came to Zechariah, it was after he'd been praying in the temple and the people outside had been praying. And the, the angel starts by telling him, listen, the, the, the prophet Malachi that you, nobody's heard from anybody else for 400 years since him, remember what he promised? God's promise about sending Elijah the prophet? Okay, that promise is being answered and also a new promise. You're going to have a kid. You're going to have a child. and He's going to be the forerunner. Zechariah completely missed it. Zechariah was all about my kid, he just totally missed the promise that God made that he would come and save the world. Not now. Do you see that? The sin of unbelief caused nine months of muteness and deafness and probably a lot of pain and agony and crying. And... But he got hungry. He got hungry. And now, now his focus, now his focus is on God's promises not on His Son, not on what God has done for Him, but what God has done for the world, for all of us. He can't help Himself with His thanks for God's faithfulness. You notice in this last verse here, I mean, promised, all of these things are about promises. He, he accentuates them. He promised about your covenant, your oath, you swore. And He's affirming the fact that God has delivered on His promises, and He always does. Amen? He always will. Friends, the story of the birth of Christ begins with the most important promise that has ever been made in the history of humankind to all of us, to all of humanity. And it's the promise that God will rescue us, that He will come and save us, that He will come and provide a way for us back to Him. And Luke begins the story, the Holy Spirit begins the story by telling us the words of three humble people. Well, two humble ladies and one man who was humbled. It's pretty amazing. It shows us clearly who God is and what He has done. These aren't fanciful mystery stories that we read at Christmas. This is the Word of God. And it shows us His plan, His infinite detail that He's working out. Listen, do you, do you feel today when you look at our world, the world that's around us, that it's chaos, that 
God will work out all things to good. Amen? He's in the process of doing that. Let me ask you today to, as Christmas comes, to get hungry. To get hungry for our God and our Savior. Pray with me, would you?